Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. What exactly is Idahoness? Later in this episode, we'll hear that term proposed and explained by Laura Curry, the new executive director of the Idaho Commission on the Arts. We start this week by talking to Chris Tamayo, who's coming back to the area next week as part of the nationally touring production of Les Miserables. And I say back because Chris is a Central Valley High School grad, as well as an alumnus of Spokane Valley Summer Theater. He appeared there in productions of The Secret Garden, The Buddy Holly Story, Bring It On, Mamma Mia, and several others. Chris landed his current role in Les Mis almost as soon as he had completed his BFA in musical theater at the University of Michigan last year. It's not a break that every aspiring actor gets, and so when I spoke to Chris by phone, we couldn't help but talk about how this was the right combination of talent and timing. You know, so often we associate nationally touring musicals and Broadway musicals as something you really have to build to, and you are fortunate enough to come right out of university and find yourself on this nationally touring production. How on earth did you make that very big leap? Oh, God, you know, I I really don't know. I honestly have whiplash because the transition (laughs) is so fast. Um, It was kind of crazy how it all happened. Uh, It was at the, you know, at the end of my senior year, and New York was kind of getting back to in-person appointments following the COVID tendency to do, like, virtual submissions or Zoom auditions. Um, So Les Miserables was kind of among the first in my personal experience where they're like, okay, come to the city. This is going to be all in-person, no virtual stuff. And that was kind of around the time of my graduation. So, you know, I graduated. And then a few days later, all of my class flew to New York for our showcase. And the same week as showcase, a couple of us were called into the Les Mis room for an initial audition. So, you know, we kind of did the initial appointment and they're like, okay, cool. We'll let you know. And then I was staying in the city for actually a month longer doing a a different rehearsal process for Greece. And then, you know, they asked me back for a couple more callbacks. And on my lunch breaks, um, on my rehearsal lunch breaks, I would sprint across Midtown, <laughs> audition, you know, audition for the late Miz team. And after that callback, I would sprint back across Midtown and <laughs> uh, pick up with my rehearsal. And that happened twice, I think. And then while, we, while I was performing Greece, and that was out at Cape Cod, I got a phone call from the casting office. And they're like, we'd love to have you be a part of this. And Yeah. So it's ever since graduation, it's been kind of go, go, go. Yeah, and that's a, an enviable position to be in. Um, and let's talk about some of these characters that you're playing, because you're, uh, I think, a member of the ensemble, but you do have kind of dedicated characters within that. You're the, the constable and Montparnasse, and I th- you're also yeah, the correct. understudy for Marius. Yes, yeah. It's been a, it's been quite a chunk to chew on, you know, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, Someone can correct me if I'm wrong in the company, but I think I have the most costume changes in the ensemble because they just have me swapping out <laughs> constantly. Like whenever they need like a body to drag on stage, it's like, who can we do? Oh yeah, this guy. <laughs> um, so I'll have like a rapid costume change following, you know, the barricade and the second act. But yeah, it's, it's quite a lot. And it's really, it's been really, we're about 430 something performances in. And I think the breadth of roles that I have, been fortunate enough to be cast in I think it keeps me engaged really keeps me engaged um you know at the top the the constables and the prologue and then Montparnasse I I get to be in Monsieur Tenardier's gang and that's what that's always fun for me that's my personal favorite because I love what wardrobe 
um, and wigs have done with that costume. It's like a complete redesign of, you know, that role. So that's always fun to step into. And then whenever I'm fortunate enough to do Marius, that's also very fun because more often than not, we'll be in a city where I'll know a friend or two and they'll be able to see me do that role. So this show and my, you know, my various roles within it, it's just very fulfilling in multiple facets. And just out of curiosity, are these fairly visible roles so that if somebody's in the audience, they'll say, there's Chris. I went to high school with him. I like to say, like, if my friends are going to see the show, it's like playing a really fun game of I Spy or Where's Waldo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at the front of the stage most of the time. So like, my friends and family are usually able to pick me out. But if I'm wearing a big hat and my face is obscured, sometimes they have a harder time. So, you know, you'll just have to come see and... Uh, find out where I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Les Mis is one of those musicals that even if you haven't seen it, you feel like you have because it is such a pervasive part of culture. Um, yeah. What about the musical has been kind of a revelation for you? Or what did you think you knew about Les Mis going in that is actually different once you're on the inside and you're performing it? Oh, I love that. I, I love that question. Um so, so Les Mis was the first musical that I saw when I moved to Spokane. I saw it at University High School. You know, so I saw that one production, and that was the only live production I'd seen. And then I went on to see the movie. And then in my brain, I think Les Mis became, I, I want to say, like, commonplace, not in the sense that it's like a bad piece of art, but it's like, oh, everyone knows Les Mis. It's so familiar. Like, these are the tunes, and, you know, it will be done until the end of time. So I think I carried that mentality into the rehearsal process initially. It's like, oh, yes, this is like one of your bread and butter, very familiar mega musicals. But I feel like working with our directors um, and our directors really dug into the literary roots, you know, of what this musical is and what it's based on, you know, Victor Hugo's original novel, um, biblical in size <laughs> and breadth, and the musical only covers a fraction of it. But they dug in so deeply that I realized like, oh, this isn't some glossy mega musical. It's actually very gritty and it can get very dark um, and get, it gets very deep. You know, it's an analysis of the human psyche and the social strata of Paris in the 19th century, you know, and our, I feel like our musical doesn't stray away from the ugly underbelly of what Victor Hugo was trying to depict in his novel. It's, it's hard, you know, like, the, there's the lovely ladies number and yes it's so iconic but you know in reality like those were were depicting people who really had to resort to those things at that point in time to you know provide a living for themselves so i think if there was anything new that i took away from my experience with lame is it's that it's, it's a really gritty story and there are hard things that happen to the characters in the show but what makes it so familiar and what makes people want to sit through three hours of it is it's such a redemptive story and there's a lot of there's just hope you know at the end of the show uh, the hope of tomorrow and like the newness of new life and new love that springs forth from everyone's sacrifices before the end of the show so i think that's what keeps people coming back and what makes it feel so familiar and so comforting to so many people well chris i want to thank you so much for taking the time out to chat I, while you're on the road i really really appreciate it and yeah it's, of course it's, it's nice to get a hometown perspective on a nationally touring musical yeah absolutely uh, thank you thank you for having me really really excited to be coming back
That was Chris Tamayo, who's returning to his hometown next week with the nationally touring production of Les Miserables. He has several ensemble roles in the mega-musical, and there's a chance you might even see him in the role of Marius. Les Mis comes to the first Interstate Center for the Arts in downtown Spokane on November 14th as part of the Best of Broadway series, and it runs there until November 19th. Tickets and more information about the show are available at broadwayspokane.com or firstinterstatecenter.org. While Les Mis is set in a very specific era and location, the book Interrogating Travel is about our very human tendency to wander, both physically and mentally. Its author, Paul Lindholt, describes himself in the subtitle as a reluctant tourist. And in its series of loosely organized essays, he reflects on the death of his son in a kayaking accident, Montana's post-Ice Age topography, ecstatic dancing, as well as the impact tourism has on local communities. Paul came into the studio recently to talk about interrogating travel, and as our conversation began, I attempted to sum his book up in a word. If I had to pick an overarching mood that emerges from this entire collection, it's one of ambivalence. Your ambivalence towards travel, your ambivalence toward human impact on the environment, so many things. Is that a fair characterization? I like that word a lot better than lamentation because (laughs) (laughs) that's the way others have typified my work sometimes. I'm lamenting the impacts of human civilization. And so, yeah, I like it. And I might add the word reconciliation. I'm, I'm reconciling myself in certain ways. I've always had at my core a kind of gnawing unease about the excesses above all the excesses. But then that uh, unease was deepened as I went around the world with uh, my spouse at the behest of that spouse and saw some of the impacts firsthand, especially impacts to indigenous people because climate change is less perceptible. The big epiphany for me was a little island off the coast of Malaysia where we spent a week. It's called Kolipi. And it's owned by Thailand, and we thought, you know, great food, sandy beaches, all this stuff. But the the takeaway for us, and me in particular, was the people, the native indigenous people who for centuries had lived right on the water and had made their livings from the water. And as tourism became a force and all the shorelines were bought up, they were moved inland by something I call a centripetal force. And so that deepened my unease and added dimensions to my native instincts as an environmentalist. And what was the kernel for this book? Did it emerge from a single essay? It emerged from the opening paragraph, and I tried to address that question implicitly by giving that quotation from the woman who runs a resort in Belize, She said to me very earnestly, sustainable travel is an oxymoron. And I wouldn't have stuck on that so much if it hadn't come from her. And the reason I ask that is because these essays or these chapters are very loosely connected. If anyone is looking for a really coherent through line and a 
a treatise that kind of takes you from start to finish and begins by introducing the effects of climate change and then drops you off at a certain point where you're going to have all the answers to solving things like over-tourism and the climate impacts of travel, they will be sorely disappointed. These are more reflections on things that are sometimes directly but sometimes tangentially related to travel. All true. Reflective, meditative, certainly not a treatise. And I wouldn't be happy with the book if I did have that sort of argumentative through line, as you put it so well. I am trained as a creative writer. And so to have corralled these chapters under the title of interrogating travel is uh, a little bit loose, but that is a theme as if it's not a through line, yes. And one of the things that you interrogate, um, so there's these opening chapters that deal with the loss of your son, Braden, and that deal with um, an excursion that you and your son, Chase, take, and then that's tied into Lake Missoula. And again, you know, it's, it's hard not to look at that without also reflecting on climate change. Um, so there are these very personal issues that arise. Do, is that because travel is such a personal undertaking for you. Yes, it is a very personal undertaking. And I'm, I'm squeamish about it, just as I was squeamish, understandably, about having one son head injured in an auto accident and another son disappear entirely in the Salish Sea. So yeah, a, a squeamish regard for travel and for its consequences, because after all, lo- those are both forms of travel, to get injured in an auto accident and to be kayaking foolishly without a PFD. And then another thing that you touch on, and maybe this stands out because it struck me as kind of the anomaly, but it was related to dance. And it, it was this intersection of dance and travel. Can you maybe distill that a little bit more? Yeah, um, we mind travel when we dance. So it's a charge of endorphins, and athletes know this very well, but what's lesser known is that from dance and the exertions therein, uh, a kind of mind travel can accrue and ensue, and it, it is from that charge of endorphins. It's also the socialization of the, the fellowship of dance, because the dance I describe is not a couple's dancing. It's, it's a group dancing called ecstatic dancing, and there really is a charge. It's a It's equivalent to a recreational drug. And throughout these essays, we're taken to various places, and there are certain names that are invoked, uh, Thoreau, naturally. Um, Richard Hugo, when we're talking about Seattle, uh, William Blake, and uh, not forgetting Mr. Magoo, who you cite as a, as a hero of sorts. Can, can you clarify that and your, <laughs> your affinity for Mr. Magoo? <laughs> You're the first one to ask me that, and, I, and I'm glad you did. He, he's my avatar, <laughs> and, and he's my avatar in the sense that when I go through the world, I'm not only squeamish, but I'm semi-blind like he is, and my spouse guides me and tells me where not to trip and where to step up when I need to. And among some other concepts that were invoked in these essays, there's one that I found really fascinating, and and that is hodophobia, which is the fear of the path. And you frame it in one instance as being the fear of the path that's traveled unquestioningly. Um, Can you elaborate on that concept a little bit more? 
Yeah, so hodophobia goes to this word I've used several times already, squeamish, this sort of discomfort or unease at my core. I identified as, as hodophobia because it, it has always ensued from travel, especially travel that is involuntary. Somebody wants me to do something and I, I'm, I'm tagging along. And so the, that path is, is the adversary. And there's one, another essay, if I can characterize it as that, that talks about the Mayan apocalypse. And it is a trip that's related to this and, um, you know, the two kind of parallel one another. And there's a line in there that says, the best way to obstruct apocalypse might be to prioritize the beating of one's own heart. And without putting too fine a point on it, because I think that's kind of poetic as it is, but if you could clarify that point. Yes, following one's intuition. So if certain forms of travel are counterintuitive, even for the most seasoned traveler, there are certain kinds of travel, by contrast, that are intuitive. And so those are the forms I prefer. And this is the opportunity for me to talk about an antidote that I proposed in the book to carbon-intensive horizontal travel, and that is vertical travel. And this is, comes from... European theorists on travel. I didn't know till I was working on the book that that was even a thing. But my antidote then is exploring, excavating one's local environs in depth as a as an alternative to the wreckage that occurs or can occur with uh, long distance travel. And you know we've talked today about themes of apocalypse and ambivalence, which can all be very negative. But I'd like to end on a hopeful note. Is there anything that you wrote about that causes you to take heart? Yes, the chapter I'm happiest with concerns travel in Palisades Park right here in Spokane. So that's my way of, of addressing your question. And the title of that chapter is Survivor Tree. And it's looking closely at the local environs and making a mystery out of them, a mystery to be solved like a good mystery book. Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, and I've had a lot of fun. Author and Eastern Washington University professor Paul Lindholt there talking about his new book titled Interrogating Travel, Guidance from a Reluctant Tourist. You can find or order Interrogating Travel at local bookstores like Auntie's and Giant Nerd Books in Spokane or The Well-Read Moose in Coeur d'Alene. Speaking of Coeur d'Alene and the many other towns and cities in Idaho, there's a new executive director at the Idaho Commission on the Arts, and as she settles into her new role, she might be making a stop near you. Laura Curry was officially appointed to the position back in August, and she's been getting her bearings in the months since. One thing she and her staff have been talking about is what makes Idaho unique. It's Idahoness, if you will. And when I talked to her by phone not too long ago, she brought up the subject of Idahoness while she was also filling me in on her priorities for the commission. Well, since I assumed this position in early August, I've really been working to build context and um, an understanding of what's happening with 
the arts in the state of Idaho and surrounding areas and really kind of understanding the communities that we serve as well. Um, I came to this position from a performing arts organization. I was the executive director at Ballet Idaho. So I do have an understanding of arts in the Treasure Valley, but really excited to learn about what's happening across the entire state and in the surrounding areas as well that border Idaho. Um, So that's what I've been working to do, build context. And the way I've been doing that is by having a lot of um, really interesting conversations with artists and arts organizations, with our team members here at Idaho Commission on the Arts and with our commissioners. So it's been a lot of learning for me in these last few weeks. And I know it's still early days, but I'm very curious about those nebulous and nascent shapes that are starting to emerge. What are some themes and some impressions that you're getting even in this early stage? Sure. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I'm realizing is that the last time that our agency engaged in the strategic planning process was right before the pandemic. So our current strategic plan is based on a world that has changed drastically. You know, as we all know, the pandemic had, in some cases, radical effects on artists and arts organizations, and some of those effects were detrimental. Some, though, were positive. But my biggest takeaway so far is that we definitely need to reimagine our our strategic plan based on the new reality um, that our artistic community is living in today. And it's actually perfect timing because we're due for a new strategic plan and we'll be engaging in that process uh, next year. Uh, I think it's going to be really informative, helpful, and also very interesting for me to go around the state and talk to each community and find out what's important to them, what's changed, what they learned from the pandemic, maybe new ways that they are operating. And I think as we gather all of that information from the different constituents that we serve, um, that's really going to help us inform that strategic plan going forward. And then we're also just talking about uh, how we operate and how we interact with the constituents that we serve. And I think a big theme that's emerging is that community and connection are really important to us. And in some ways, they're almost our superpower. I know that sounds a little bit um, hokey, but it kind of appeals to the eight-year-old kid in me, you know, to think, what is it about our agency that is unique and special that maybe not other art organizations like ours can do or, or you know, skills that we have that not others possess? And I think Um, You know, the fact that Idaho is relatively small in terms of population means that we have the opportunity to have relationships with a lot of the artists and art organizations across the state and beyond. And I think that is an emerging theme as well, that that is very important to us and that that will feature heavily in um, the work that we do going forward in terms of us prioritizing, you know, how we um, structure our work. And you're still familiarizing yourself with a lot of things. I imagine that the past few weeks or past few months and then the forthcoming months are still going to be engaged in a lot of fact-finding and a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of familiarizing yourself with additional aspects of the organization. But 
I would assume that you've come across certain things that have been maybe pleasant surprises, things you didn't know about, whether that's uh, a certain discipline that was flourishing or whether it was an organization that may have been peripheral to you and then now you realize that they're doing incredible work. What have been some of those pleasant surprises in these kind of first few days on the job? Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about that for sure. Um, So, you know, as a a lifelong lover of the arts, I felt like I understood coming into this position what the definition of art was. And just in my short time here, it's been thrilling to find out what's happening all over our state and beyond um, that's very artistic and that I never would have considered before. So, for example, I got to go to a saddle maker summit in Salmon, and there were about 35 or 40 saddle makers who convened from Idaho, also from surrounding states, a couple from surrounding states, and they talked about their craft for an entire weekend, and it was fascinating. You know, I had no idea all of the components that's a handmade saddle and um, the thought that goes into specific angles and materials and things like that. So for me, it's fascinating to understand what's happening in different parts of the state that is artistic and wonderful. Um, That's part of what makes Idaho unique. And that's kind of this concept that I've been playing with. A couple of folks on our staff have said this word that I'm considering and really enjoying, and it's Idahoness. And, you know, the first time I heard it, I thought, well, that's a kind of a strange word. I'm not sure what I think of it. But the more I think about it, the more I'm enjoying exploring it, because I feel like it is a word that is hard to pin down, but it's fun to investigate. And to me, things like the saddle makers in Salmon or a person who's a silversmith up in the northern part of the state or someone who's doing something really unique with textiles in some other part of the state or someone who's writing amazing poetry about, you know, our foothills, whatever it is, all of those things are what together make up that word Idahoness. And I've been really having a lot of fun exploring that and kind of filling out that definition in my mind. Well, Laura, I look forward to the continued celebration of Idahoness during your tenure, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to chat about this today, and I'm hoping that we can check in in the relatively near future and just see how things are going and what's changed and what's in the cards for Idaho Commission on the Arts. Well, thanks so much for having me, EJ. I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk with you, and I also hope we get to talk again soon. That was Laura Curry, the new executive director of the Idaho Commission on the Arts. She was filling us in on the first few months in her new role and her near and long-term ambitions for the organization. Some of the opportunities and initiatives they have coming up include their final quarter of arts-related grant funding for 2023. The application deadline for that is December 4th. Schools and libraries can also submit their applications to participate in Idaho's annual Poetry Out Loud competition. The deadline for that is December 1st. And early next year, they'll start taking nominations for the Governor's Award in the Arts. 
You can find more information about all of those, as well as the Idaho Commission on the Arts, at arts.idaho.gov. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. Each week on Spokane Public Radio, the Thursday Arts Preview offers us an opportunity to revisit fun and interesting interviews, music, and performances you might have missed when they first aired. It's also a space where we look ahead to upcoming events or activities that you won't want to miss. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli.